The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasser Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Nathan Sim of the Section of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in Washington, D.C. He is an assistant professor of medicine at George Washington University and conducts translational research on biomarkers of inflammation and coagulation in ARDS and sepsis. Welcome, Dr. Sim. Thanks, Yasha. Today we'll discuss an important topic that has been at the forefront of medical news and generated fear among healthcare workers as well as the public at large, caring for critically ill patients with Ebola virus disease. Dr. Rob Fowler, the first author of an article about this topic in the October 1, 2014 American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, and John Savransky join me to provide perspective on this topic. Dr. Fowler is an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto and serves as a consultant for the World Health Organization. In this role, he has cared for patients with Ebola in West Africa alongside colleagues from Médecin Sans Frontières, or MSF. Dr. Savransky is Associate Professor of Medicine at Emory University, where patients with Ebola virus disease have been treated, and he is the Assistant Director of Medicine of the Emory Critical Care Center. In today's podcast, we'll discuss Dr. Fowler's personal experiences in West Africa, as well as the challenges and issues related to safely treating patients with Ebola in the United States. Please note that the information discussed is current as of the day of this taping, October 23, 2014. Let's start the podcast with a question for Dr. Fowler. Dr. Fowler, your article in the Blue Journal comes from the perspective of yourself as well as other clinicians who've taken care of patients with Ebola virus disease in West Africa. I think our listeners will be interested in hearing more about your story. Could you please tell us how you got involved in the care of these patients, how long you cared for them, and where you worked? Thanks very much for the interest in this topic. I have worked over the past year and a half with the World Health Organization, and usually based in Switzerland, in fact, this past year. But with the first notification of patients with Ebola virus disease on March the 21st, a WHO team of epidemiologists, clinicians, logisticians, coordinators, was deployed to Guinea in order to better understand and to try to assist and help with the outbreak from the perspective of the WHO country office assisting the Ministry of Health in Guinea right at the very beginning of the outbreak. And over the subsequent six months uh, leading into October, we've been very active as a clinical group through West Africa, through Guinea, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Nigeria, and Senegal, and more recently in the DRC, uh, trying to assist the local country offices. For my own work in West Africa, it's been through Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, where for the most part I've been involved with primary care of patients with Ebola virus disease in treatment centers. 
Thanks for that, Dr. Fowler. If you could, I think the listeners would really be interested in telling us what it's like, your day-to-day experience in these three countries that you mentioned in terms of caring for these patients. Uh, The day-to-day experience is variable, and it certainly depends upon the needs on the ground and the location and what the local authorities, Ministry of Health, WHO country office needs. However, for primary care, most of the patients over the course of the outbreak are admitted to specific Ebola treatment units or care centers and the clinical team would assist in primary care of these patients. Usually the day would start uh, at 8 o'clock. We'd have a meeting to discuss what's happened overnight with the patients, the challenges in the area around the treatment center, maybe issues of getting supplies in, uh, maybe plan out the day, upcoming events over the course of the next few hours or few days. And then the clinical team would quickly get to work at getting into their personal protective equipment, speaking with the nurses, speaking with the other members of the care team, and go into the treatment centers and see all of the patients that have either been admitted over the last few hours or are coming in as we're starting work, assess them clinically by their history, try to clarify some of the things that might not have been clear at at their entry into the facility, and then provide care, which is is frequently care of a patient with a febrile gastrointestinal illness that has muscle aches and pains, needs symptomatic relief and control, and also often requires treatment to rehydrate the patients, ideally through oral means, if they can drink, and if they can't drink and they can't eat, then most of the patients will require at some point intravenous therapy with crystalloid solutions, electrolyte replacements, and then symptomatic control for what ends up being the most common aspects of the syndrome, vomiting and diarrhea. We would stay in the facilities for variable durations of time depending upon the number of staff that were there, depending on the need of the patients, and inevitably have to ourselves take a break, uh, come out, eat, rehydrate, cool down, and prepare to do it again in different shifts, usually at least three per day, to follow up on the patients, to deliver medications, to deliver intravenous fluids, and to try to take care of them the best we can. I'd like to follow up on that a little bit. Dr. Fowler, I I saw the picture of the treatment facility in Guinea in in your Blue Journal article, and it's not what we sort of picture when we CR, uh, we're used to caring for patients in our nice North American hospitals. I was wondering if you could describe the facility for us and, and some more specifics, like, you know, how many patients you were caring for, how many other doctors and nurses were you working with during your care there? At the beginning of the outbreak in Guinea at the end of March, the photo of the care center in Donka Hospital, just next door to it, in fact, originally was cholera treatment unit, so a fixed wall structure with concrete floor that would house and and be a place where patients with cholera could receive care. And it was uh, identified very early on in the outbreak in Conakry as a a very reasonable place to start a treatment facility. And myself and another WHO physician, Tom Fletcher, in addition to a couple of MSF physicians, 
uh, four MSF nurses and a terrific support team of logisticians, coordinator, epidemiologists, water sanitation experts were all over the first, I would say, weeks of that period in, in Conakry focused on getting that treatment center up and running. MSF does a terrific job at building out a treatment center, establishing the principles of flow of patients so that it's safe for both patients and care, and with a great supply chain of equipment and medications to help deliver best care to patients. And we worked alongside uh, of each other over the next weeks to establish that, that care facility. Uh, it is very different, of course, from what we would experience in the North American or Western European context around caring for critically ill patients, of which many of these are definitely critically ill, in that you're in ambient temperatures at that time of year that are very hot. The days might be 35 degrees centigrade, 40 degrees Celsius, 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside, uh, fairly high humidity. And coupled upon that for the healthcare team, uh, you're in personal protective equipment that has some degree of breathability, but often very limited. So the temperatures inside the PPE can get quite hot, uh, very humid, limits the ability to, to sweat and cool down. And oftentimes that limits the amount of time that you would be able to spend with patients at any, any given time up to an hour to three hours, four hours, depending upon the kind of PPE that you use. And then you would repeat that multiple times a day in, in different rounds with your team. The sorts of equipment and medications that are available there, well, we certainly have oral rehydration solution, intravenous fluids, IVs to put in, electrolyte replacement to try to correct some of the common metabolic abnormalities, especially with diarrhea, hypokalemia, uh, non-anion gas, metabolic acidosis, uh, renal dysfunction, uh, liver dysfunction. And some of the things that we don't commonly have would include uh, ways to deliver supplemental oxygen to patients or certainly ways to deliver non-invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation to patients should they go into some degree of hypoxic or hypercapnic respiratory failure. The fortunate part in Guinea, at least in most of West Africa, in fact, this illness really, as a syndrome, is predominantly around gastrointestinal symptoms and vomiting and diarrhea. And primary respiratory presentations are distinctly uncommon. Luckily, most all of the patients that I would have seen were not hypoxic, at least through the majority of the course of their illness, and didn't require supplemental oxygen or ventilation and both supplemental oxygen and ventilation is essentially uh, non-existent in most all of these settings. It's very, very uncommon to have piped oxygen in any of the hospitals, let alone a newly constructed treatment facility. Oxygen concentrators are in very, very limited supply, even within the hospitals and uh, virtually non-existent in care centers. And therefore, the, the kind of care that you deliver, the kind of critical care, is very much focused upon volume assessment and replacement, avoidance of hypoperfusion-related abnormalities, but not the same sort of hypoxic and hypercapnic respiratory failure that we commonly associate with critical illness in most of our ICUs in, in North America. 
Thanks for that detailed discussion about what you were dealing with, Dr. Fowler. I'd also like to follow up with a little bit more specifics in terms of the natural history. There's been, obviously, with all the fear related to Ebola, you hear a lot of misinformation regarding the disease through the media. And sadly, you have watched many patients go through this natural history in West Africa. So I was wondering, you know, you described this mostly being a gastrointestinal disease. I was wondering, are there intervals from symptom onset, which I assume would be fever, and are there time courses of where there are different aspects of treatment that you gave during different periods of illness? Yes. So the syndrome of Ebola virus disease is very much a febrile and then gastrointestinal illness. And typically, after someone is exposed to the virus, and if the virus does get into their system, the period of incubation is between two and and 21 days, typically. The portals of entry, for the most part, are what we would call mucous membrane exposure through eyes, nose, or mouth, or very rarely a a sharp injury, if you want, a needle stick that healthcare workers could conceivably uh, have. But the vast majority of exposures would be muco or percutaneous, again, needing to protect your eyes, your nose, and your mouth, from contact with the virus when you're dealing with patients who are infectious. In terms of the symptoms, should they, should they develop, should someone actually get Ebola virus disease, the hallmark really is a febrile illness. People will have very nonspecific symptoms, often feeling very fatigued, might have muscle aches and pains, and feel very unwell, like you might with a whole host of viral illnesses. But within a few days, this changes to have a component where you're quite anorexic, where you start to develop nausea after a couple more days, vomiting, and then within the first week of the illness, most people will develop not just vomiting but diarrhea that can persist over the the subsequent many days and into the second week of the syndrome where there is a lot of fluid loss, particularly through diarrhea for many of the patients. And it's very important to be able to find a mechanism either through oral rehydration or intravenous fluid therapy to keep up with that volume of diarrhea. We've, we've seen diarrhea amounts over the course of a day when measured of 4 to 10 liters per day. So you can imagine how quickly people can get volume depleted and have the common electrolyte abnormalities of hypokalemia and low bicarbonate and metabolic acidosis. If those things aren't corrected through volume repletion, then on top of it, you may layer upon complications, and the complications that we'd all be very familiar with in terms of hypoperfusion of organs, prominently manifested by renal dysfunction, raising your creatinine, raising your BUN, lowering of your bicarbonates, and problems that are related to Ebola virus, but maybe indirectly so, end up being as problematic and as important for the history and the natural history of the illness as the actual virus itself. Over the course of one to two weeks, if we can support patients through that part of the illness, then most patients will be able to start to develop an immune response of their own antibodies that will help to control the virus and then shut the virus down. 
although the mortality rate in West Africa uh, historically for Zaire Ebola virus has been in the ballpark of 60 to, to 90 percent, we see during this outbreak that mortality rates are closer to 50 to 70 percent. And much of that, unfortunately, still reflects the very natural history of the illness as opposed to the natural history of treated illness. And one of the main goals over the first six months of the outbreak and certainly the next many months of the outbreak is to improve our ability to deliver supportive care to patients that can get them through the bulk of their, of their symptoms uh, to the point that they can clear virus with their own antibodies. Thank you, Dr. Fallon. Just to follow up on one aspect of that, you mentioned losing four to ten liters of fluid uh, with diarrhea. And I wonder, obviously, in the West, we have a low threshold. We put an IV in, we get a pressure bag and bolus people uh, a couple of liters. And I wonder, logistically, were there challenges to uh, giving IV hydration and how often you would use that as opposed to you know, oral hydration in these patients that were losing copious amounts of fluids? Well, for the first many days of their illness, patients are often still able to take oral uh, rehydration, and, and that would be the preferred route, of course, for anybody if they can keep up. If they can't, and it seems as though they're, they're not, and, and most patients, in fact, will not be able to take in oral fluids beyond the first many days of their, of their symptoms, then getting an IV in is, in my opinion, critical to avoid those complications we, we spoke about, hypoperfusion, related issues with, with Ebola virus disease are very influential with respect to the morbidity and, and mortality. And when we look back over different series of patients, the balance of oral and intravenous fluid therapy is quite variable. And it's, it's quite variable, I think, depending mostly on the resources that we would have in different areas to care for patients. So if, if you're very limited in terms of the number of staff that you have, there's a finite amount of time that you can spend in the treatment facility and a finite amount of time that you can spend with each individual patient. So if you're, for instance, trying to care for 50 or 60 patients in a treatment facility and you have maybe two or three physicians and maybe two or three nurses, uh, the amount of time that you can be with any one patient is limited, particularly so if you're limited by personal protective equipment and the heat and dehydration issues of the caregivers. You can imagine if you're going in on a shift to care for 60 patients and there are maybe three or four of you and you can only spend in the ballpark of one to, to three hours, uh, the math says that you can't probably deliver all of the care that you need. And it's important to realize that and to help encourage more people to respond to this outbreak in West Africa where there's still a critical mismatch in supply and, and demand for healthcare workers to help deliver these therapies. Very important to be able to help support these patients through the illness. Thank you for providing some of those details for us. Uh, I'd like to ask you one final question about your, your personal experience. Certainly it seems that it can be extremely challenging for you physically and, and mentally, particularly seeing you know certain members of families die, um, children being left as orphans. I wonder, is there a specific anecdote or patient that most prominently sticks with you as you reflect on, on your time caring for patients in West Africa? You know, I think it's very tough when you have young kids mothers and babies coming into a, a treatment facility, both of whom either have or will have 
symptoms and, and be ill and to try to support young kids through an illness that's very tough, to support parents through an illness that's very tough when they know their family's affected. And the burden that, that you see oftentimes in extended families that have suffered a lot of transmission and ultimately often a lot of death is, is very tough and very memorable in a very negative way. You know, on the, on the good side of things, I also have very, very strong memories of the patients that you're able to support through, some of whom are very sick, and you might not think you can get them through, but with a lot of supportive care, you sometimes are able to get them out of the treatment facility after, after surviving the illness. I can think of a range of, of adults and, and kids that, you know, like our patients in the ICUs here, you're with them at the, the worst of their illness and to see them get better and to leave the treatment facility just helps you think this is, this is why we do it. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Fowler. Uh, Dr. Severinsky, I'd actually like to transition now to discussing things that have scared a lot of people, um, uh, staff concerns and caring for these patients that have now come up. You, know, you were a co-author of an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine describing considerations for caring for patients with Ebola virus disease. And since that publication, um, unfortunately, a lot has happened, and there's been a considerable amount of fear among healthcare workers uh, after the cases in uh, Dallas and Spain of uh, healthcare workers contracting uh, Ebola virus disease. So on October 20th uh, of 2014, the CDC has revised their guidance for healthcare workers and emphasized that with personal protective equipment or PPE, no skin should be exposed. You're at Emory where they've been utilizing biosafety level four precautions from the beginning. And I was hoping you could describe this level of precaution to our listeners. So you're correct that we've been following the essentially the equivalent of the new CDC guidelines for caring for, for patients with, with Ebola virus disease that involves uh, having no skin exposed and using uh, personal uh, protective equipment. And it's fairly difficult to describe in an audio link. I, I understand that you have plans to put some links to this podcast that will allow somebody to watch the, the process of, of putting on personal protective equipment. It's something that prior to myself doing this, while there are people at Emory who have been thinking about this for a long time, the Serious Communicable Disease Unit has been in, in place for 12 years. I was not part of that until recently, and so I went through the training as, a, as somebody who was naive and had uh, two hours' worth of instruction with essentially a buddy watching over me, making sure that I was following the protocols to, uh, again, have no skin exposed, uh, double gloves. And I think one of the things that was instilled in me relatively early is that it is as important or more important to pay close attention when taking the personal protective equipment off as it is in putting them on. And, and this is not something as a critical care clinician that, uh, that I had really thought much about beforehand. The other thing that was a little bit surprising to me with the training is that for the 20 or so years that I've been uh, a physician, I've been putting on my gloves incorrectly and taking off my gloves incorrectly. And so 
learning how to do this properly was something that was useful, um, but also a little bit surprising. Well, thank you for sharing that. To be candid with those personal insights, you know, anecdotally, I've talked to several physicians that have taken them at least eight tries to do this correctly, and you really are surprised at how difficult it is. I was wondering, you know, things that people ask are, are, you know, what type of training is required prior to caring for these patients, and I don't know if if you could describe maybe what the, the process is at Emory. So at Emory, again, the serious communicable disease unit has a number of uh, standard operating procedures, and they have a a group of trainers who intermittently will get uh, people together for about two hours to observe them to uh, make sure that people understand this and to make sure that people are comfortable with donning and removing the personal protective equipment. I can tell you personally, since our involvement with patients has gone on over a number of months, many of us have gone to refreshers if it's been a few weeks since we've been in the unit just to make sure that we are comfortable, that we have not uh, forgotten how to properly take care of things. I think the the other thing that's important in addition to the training is in the implementation that when you're both donning and removing the equipment that you have a buddy with you watching to make sure that you were doing this properly. And I think this is one of the key elements is is that this is something that you need a partner for. And even people who walk not into the isolation rooms but into the antechamber between the rooms have somebody come with them to make sure that, that you were doing appropriate things in terms of where you stand and what you're wearing and that you do things that many U.S. healthcare workers don't do, such as wash your hands before you go into a room and come out of the room. Thank you for mentioning that. And certainly, you know, even the, the CDC guidance has emphasized the importance of monitoring. You know, one of the challenges, we'll talk a little bit about in, in a moment, are the staffing concerns. What level of training, at least at Emory, someone who's a buddy, I mean, you know, are, are these nurses who are trained? I assume it's not just physicians. Could you tell us about the monitors and, and who they are specifically in terms of training? So the monitors are tend to be nurses who have been trained and who've been working in the unit for a number of years. And like many protocols that critical care physicians follow, whether it's placing a a catheter or washing their hands before into the room, nurses tend to be essential at making sure that you standardize correct behavior. And that has been especially apparent in these units. We do have some experienced physicians who are capable of doing this. But as a whole, it is much more likely that you have an experienced nurse who has done this a number of times and is comfortable watching somebody else uh, put on and, and take off the equipment. Well, thanks, Dr. Severansky. And as you pointed out, it's difficult to, to discuss on the, uh, an audio podcast. And on thoracic.org, we will have links to the best videos and, and content that uh, does describe donning and doffing of PPE. Dr. Fowler, obviously, you know, from your prior description, you were uh, working in a, in a much more resource-limited environment, and you were able to safely care for many Ebola patients. Can you tell us about the World Health Organization uh, guidance regarding PPE? 
and in terms of your personal experience, the, the training and learning curve and the, and the monitoring system in the hospitals in which you worked. As part of the uh, WHO's PPE guidance group, I can comment on the current recommendations for PPE use that is generalizable across care settings. And it really focuses upon the mode of transmission from person to person. And that, again, is, is around virus coming into contact with your mucous membrane. So for most of us, that's going to be contact with your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. Or when you're in and around a treatment facility, potentially having a Sharps injury and having a percutaneous exposure to the virus through bodily fluids. There are a range of other options for hoods that can be worn, either as part of individual suits or as part of a standalone hood that may or may not be combined with a purified air delivery device or, or a PAPR. When we are performing in the West procedures that might aerosolize virus, typically things like intubation, potentially bronchoscopy, or other maneuvers inside a care facility, it's reasonable to want to protect against any aerosol spread and, and therefore the mask caliber is important and or the, the use potentially of a, of a PAPR type device is also very reasonable. One of the things that I found in the Western context is, is that a PAPR device can be affording a, a great degree of comfort in terms of a flow of air and, and cooling that otherwise you often can't really achieve when you're in another kind of hood. And that might be an additional consideration for healthcare workers that are spending a long period of time inside a patient's room. But if we go back to the basics of PPE recommendation, certainly those that are advocated by WHO, it's to prevent contact of virus with your mucous membranes, so having a face shield or goggles, having an appropriate mask over your nose and mouth, having a gown or suit to cover your torso, arms, and legs, having at least one and mostly two pair of gloves, and to have something either part of the suit or otherwise protecting your feet cover. Uh, could be rubber boots in the field uh, that are washed off as you come out of the facility, or it could be some sort of covering for a soiled area when you're facility here in, in North America. Well, thank you for giving some of those practical tips, uh, Dr. Fowler. Uh, Dr. Severinsky, I'd like to, to talk about the experience in, in the United States. Um, including Emory, there are four biocontainment units, as I understand, in the United States that are equipped to isolate patients with dangerous infectious diseases. We've seen that patients have been transferred to Emory, to the National Institutes of Health, and to the unit at the Nebraska Medical Center. And I'd ask you, uh, again, staffing is going to be a, an issue. How many patients with Ebola virus disease can reasonably be managed at a time in, in these units I've described? And how many staff does it take to manage each of these patients? So thank you for the question. In North America, the staffing for the units tends to be quite different from that in resource-limited environments so that we have a large number of nurses and a large number of physician clinicians caring for each of these patients. Um, I can speak best about Emory, which is able to take two patients 
in the Serious Communicable Disease Unit. And the incremental addition in workload between one and two patients is not huge. There are additional uh, nurse requirements, and as Rob has very eloquently described, the amount of time to doff and safely decontaminate yourself after going into one of the units is the, the amount of time is not insubstantial. So that the incremental workload for each patient mostly has to do with the requirements of going in and coming out of the of the rooms. It is much different than the staffing that most of us are used to when caring for critically ill patients. And whether or not one could get economies of scale of having much larger units is, is a complicated question and one that I'm probably not qualified to answer right now. Thank you for that. Just to follow up, I think, you know, the concern and talking to some colleagues around the country, I think every hospital is obviously faced with what their response will be. And there are not enough beds in these units, these four U.S. biocontainment units, to manage a response if there is obviously a large outbreak. So, again, I think that hopefully that is not likely to occur. But the question I'd have is how should the United States as a whole manage a response if there's a large outbreak? And, again, this is all opinion. We all understand there's no data about this. But clearly all hospitals need to be prepared to diagnose and initially support patients with suspected Ebola virus disease. But, you know, all the logistics that uh, Dr. Fowler described, um, the challenge of training staff, should we develop a regionalized system where dedicated centers are trained and experts, such as you described at Emory, and accept patients with confirmed cases of Ebola virus disease, like we already do for a variety of diseases that require more specialized care? If you could tell us what you think, Dr. Severansky. So you're asking a public policy question, which I am not qualified to speak about public policy. I'm wearing a clinician hat who's been involved with the staffing of one of these units. Having said that, my personal opinion is that, like many other things in critical care, things that you do a lot of, you get better at. And so I think it would make sense that patients with a disease that requires specialized care be seen in units where people are comfortable taking care of these patients. And I think that it would be hard to do that in every hospital in the U.S. Transferring these patients carries some risks and also requires specialized expertise. So again, this is a difficult question, but I think it would make sense that people are cared for in centers where people are comfortable caring for patients with Ebola virus. So, Dr. Severinsky, I did want to talk to you about some of the local challenges as hospitals across the country are being told to implement a, a response in case patients with Ebola virus disease are going to be managed in your local hospital. I wanted to ask your opinion. So, outside of these biocontainment units, where in a hospital would you put patients with Ebola when they're not critically ill? Are there certain minimum standards that, that would be needed? and what staff should care for them. Some have argued that, you know, it's bad for morale if not everyone is caring for the patient, but yet clearly there's a learning curve and it would 
make sense intuitively that a subset of specially trained people should be caring for these patients. Another issue I've heard come up are trainees. Many hospitals rely on interns, residents, fellows. If they are appropriately trained, should they be involved in the care of these patients? So thank you for that question. At our own institution, we have done this through a pool of volunteers who are willing to go through the additional training. And I think it really makes sense to have people who are trained and willing to do this take care of these patients. In my own opinion, this should not include trainees. And I have to say that this is in great difference from the way that we treat other potential communicable diseases. And I can recall as a medical student taking care of patients with HIV when this was something where people had similar concerns about the safety of caring for patients a few years after the AIDS epidemic developed. But I don't think that trainees, given their time requirements and their time constraints, at this point should be caring for these patients, again, given the amount of time that it takes to train, the fact that they're often sleep-deprived, I think, in my own opinion, would limit their role I should mention, however, that as part of our medical school training, I I had a small ethics uh, group session yesterday with 10 medical students, and they voted nine to one that they thought the trainees should be involved. So at least some of our trainees believe that they should be involved, but at our institution they are not. And I can tell you that for most of the institutions that I've spoken with, because this is a very hot topic, who are thinking about how they will handle their response, most of them will not include trainees in their response to these patients. That's very interesting. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Savransky. Dr. Fowler, I'd like to ask your opinion about this and and also specifically about, you know, the sort of unit you would put a, a patient in and also recognizing the need for space to have space to safely don and doff PPE, also the consideration of uh, copious amounts of infectious waste. Some of the practical issues that uh, we encounter in caring for a patient with Ebola in a Western setting are around finding a place in the hospital that is equipped to handle patient care from the time they arrive into the hospital until the time they leave the hospital. And I do believe that minimizing patient transports around an institution are a very important IPC principle that that we should focus on. Having a care team that is able to follow the patient longitudinally through the hospitalization so that they don't need to move care teams and move locations because of that as their own illness changes, but they're able to stay with a consistent group uh, that knows the illness and knows that patient is also important. It's very much like a usual critical care of a patient in that these patients with Ebola virus disease require input from a number of specialties. 
and those kinds of specialties are certainly going to be critical care for many patients. Uh, and I think we're really uniquely positioned to have experienced in our usual practice the multi-system nature of many kinds of infections, uh, whether it be viral or bacterial or other insults that get people critically ill. We're just used to seeing lots of systemic side effects of critical illness. And I think we have a lot to offer both in the Western context but also in the West African context uh, in caring for these patients. So a team that you know is going to have input from infectious diseases, uh, from potentially nephrology, potentially from other services in the hospital, depending upon individual patient complications, is important to, to develop and, and to have ready and, and comfortable before a patient arrives. It's often, I think, less necessary to deliver patient care in a manner that we do for some patients that don't have an infectious illness that is so transmissible. And specifically, I mean going into the patient room and performing physical examinations through a whole range of people every day. I think that's a practice that we can be much more efficient and much smarter with in that minimizing the direct contact with patients to care that is important and essential, but thinking twice and three times about whether an additional nurse or an additional doctor would need to enter the room is an important aspect of keeping the healthcare team generally safe. Much of the information that one person can gather from being with the patient doing a physical examination, et cetera, can be transmitted to the rest of the team. And communicating with patients who at the onset of their illness are often not that sick and can certainly communicate very well with us, even through an intercom between the inside of the room and the outside of the room, is, is a very important way to provide care, smart care, and not put people at unnecessary uh, risk of being inside a room. I think it forces us as well to be both smart and efficient with our testing of patients. So individual laboratory tests, radiology tests, where we might have a different threshold for sending someone for a CAT scan or something that would require them to leave their own isolation area. It provides us, frankly, an opportunity to ask, do we really need that test? Is it going to change our management? Is it going to incrementally improve the care of the patient? Or is it something that might be interesting to know but won't change the care of this patient? And if it's the latter, we should take this as an opportunity to really become very efficient uh, with appropriate testing. Most of the testing that these patients are going to require can be done within the patient room without necessity for patients to leave their room while they're still infectious. And that includes blood taking, that includes standard radiology, x-rays. And for most patients with this syndrome, forgetting about some of the complications, uh, other off-unit type tests, CAT scans are, in my experience, rarely necessary and rarely helpful. Most of the care can come to the patients in that individual room. With respect to the notion of the team and whether trainees and people that are not yet finished their full medical training should be involved in the care, I think it's very important that a team uh, of, of trainees be 
exposed to the kind of care that's being delivered to these patients, being exposed to the learning opportunities that arise through the care of Ebola. But I think, as Dr. Severansky said, it's important for the fully trained clinicians and intensivists to be the ones that are most familiar and caring with these patients and develop that expertise before we would ever imagine having trainees participate in the care of of patients. And at my own institution, we have taken a similar policy that the care will be assigned to a very small group of clinicians, doctors, and nurses predominantly, and we won't expand that circle of care. Well, thank you for that insight, Dr. Fowler. I'd like to ask Dr. Sofransky about what happens when these patients become critically ill. As Dr. Fowler mentioned earlier, typically hypoxia and respiratory disease uh, doesn't occur until late and as a sign of late in the disease with multi-system organ failure. I would assume that ideally you would have patients in a room where you wouldn't have to transfer them, but you could actually bring a critical care setting to that room if they were to decompensate. But the thing that's interesting is, as Dr. Fowler was describing the lack of, you know, piped-in oxygen and ventilators, that the West African experience doesn't provide guidance on standard operating procedures and risks of transmission in cardiac arrest scenarios when, you're expo- when there's a lot of staff involved in intubations, which, again, isn't occurring, and what to do with um, equipment used in the care of, of, of these patients, like ventilators, uh, dialysis. I was wondering, again, it's all opinion. There is not an evidence base to go on, but what are your thoughts on, on these sort of practical considerations that hospitals are going to have to develop on the fly? So thank you for that question. I would concur with most of, and probably all of what Dr. Fowler just said in terms of making sure that you bring the care to the patient rather than bring the patient to the care. And so having a patient in an area where you can deliver the types of life-sustaining therapy that some of them may require is quite important. I would also emphasize that knowing how you would handle initiation of life-sustaining therapy and making sure that you have the requisite medications and equipment that you would need readily available and that you, as Dr. Fowler highlighted, minimize the number of people who traffic into the room. So oftentimes when patients are critically ill, There are lots and lots of people in the room, and that is often not technically feasible to do in many isolation settings, certainly not in the Emory isolation setting. So having a highly trained person with all of the skills and all of the equipment that they would need to perform an invasive or life-sustaining therapy is quite important. The other thing that is probably important to contrast is that in critical care, generally, we do a lot of just-in-time procedures that going under the principle that if you can avoid life-sustaining therapy with invasive uh, mechanical ventilation, or if you can avoid placing a central catheter until it's absolutely necessary, we often push these off until 
again, that it's required at that exact moment. And that is not technically feasible to do if you are not already gowned and have your personal protective equipment on in somebody with Ebola virus disease. So we often try to think a little bit ahead so that you're not stuck in a situation where you need to do something that will require excessive haste and really thinking a step in advance, while that's important in all critical care, is probably even more important when you have to deal with the limitations and requirements of going into an isolation room. The other thing that maybe is worth mentioning is that in hospitals now in North America, it is quite common to have particular tasks designated to people who are able to practice at the top of their license. So for example, respiratory therapists and dialysis nurses often handle the mechanics of those two therapies. Respiratory therapists often change uh, ventilator settings and make adjustments. And not all centers will have respiratory therapists who will be trained and able to go into the room of patients who require life-sustaining therapy. So if you're in a center where somebody is not trained to go into the room, oftentimes practice may go back to the way it was 20 or 30 years ago when you have physicians or other clinicians, including nurses, making adjustments on the ventilator, turning things up or turning things down. And this is, again, a little bit different than how we handle this outside of these isolation rooms. That's an excellent point, again, trying to minimize the traffic in these rooms. Dr. Fowler, I wanted to close the podcast with certainly I think the thing that going forward is most important, and that is managing the outbreak in West Africa. Given your experience caring for patients with Ebola virus disease, you obviously have a unique insight into the future of this crisis. We know that the military is building hospitals in Africa. That'll take some time. You already mentioned earlier the lack of caregivers as a problem, but I'd ask if you could say we need these resources right now at this moment in West Africa, if you could tell us what that might be. I think this is a, a really important point that, um, that you make in that. Well, it's very important that we all, in our own care settings here in, in North America, prepare to treat patients that have Ebola. The likelihood that any one in institution ever sees a patient with Ebola is very, very, very small. There will be people that come back from providing care in West Africa that are known to have either an exposure or infection that will be preferentially uh, treated in, in certain predefined places. There may be returning travelers that could get ill after coming to the U.S. or to Canada or other countries, and we have to be prepared for that, and any institution has to be prepared for that, that kind of assessment. But the numbers of cases in North America are, uh, are, are very, very small, and they're likely to be very, very small in the future. You know, to date, there are approximately 10,000 patients that have had known infection and about 5,000 that have died in West Africa. 
and really that's an underestimate probably because of the unknown cases that have either never presented or have died before receiving care. And the outbreak continues as much as it ever has from the onset. And so the case counts are rising substantially in, in still every country. Sierra Leone and, and Liberia currently uh, being the most heavily affected areas. Among the, the many things that we need to do to help stop this outbreak and protect ourselves at home in North America is to focus on shutting the outbreak down in West Africa. And that's only going to come with help from the international community. And so preventing problems at home, like many things, it's important to help with the problems that exist in other places. From the clinical care side, we urgently need more clinicians, critical care doctors, emergency room doctors, primary care doctors, infectious diseases doctors, nurses, and a range of other people to engage in outbreak response in West Africa. There are a number of organizations now that are doing terrific work on the ground to try to help provide care for patients, but also to prevent further spread. And for anybody that has interest in helping out with that response, there are a lot of venues to provide that kind of assistance. We really need to increase our focus on providing care to patients and helping to stop the outbreak in West Africa. Otherwise, we'll continue to face these sorts of challenges at home. You know, over the last couple of weeks with, unfortunately, patients in the U.S. Uh, with Ebola virus disease, that has really shifted the media attention towards important but small in number cases with Ebola virus disease uh, to North America. And it's shifted our focus away from where the enormous burden of illness and the enormous morbidity and mortality remains. And we all need to ask ourselves how we might best help with the response in West Africa. I want to thank Dr. Fowler and Dr. Severansky for their insights. Clearly, there is much to learn about Ebola virus disease as we learn how to safely care for these patients in the U.S. and hope to contain the outbreak in West Africa. The article from Dr. Fowler and his colleagues discussing the care of critically ill patients with Ebola virus disease is published in the October 1, 2014 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. In addition, the ATS will provide an Ebola virus disease resource center for clinicians. You'll be able to find this resource at thoracic.org with content and links to important websites that provides information for caregivers regarding Ebola, including proper procedures for donning and doffing personal protective equipment. I'm Nitin Thiem for the Blue Journal.